All right, it's a month into 2021, and you are committed to making this year better than the last, but you're stuck in the weeds of charting. You spend the evenings catching up on notes and messages when you could leave work with a clean slate and enjoy an evening to connect and recharge. Dr. Phil Boucher is a pediatrician, podcast host, and a father of five who's heard from many physicians ready to step out of the day-to-day grind, the never-ending chart, meeting and messages, and reclaim their time to focus on what only they can do. He's put together a six-week course called On Time MD for physicians who need more time. And of course, who doesn't need more time? In this course, physicians of all specialties and employment statuses can learn time management strategies that have been tailored specifically for physicians. On Time MD walks through time management strategies in the exam room, in your inbox, and EHR in meetings and more. The most popular module is called How to Delegate Without Dumping. Gotta love that name. And teaches physicians how to delegate tasks to your staff in a way that doesn't make them feel dumped on, but instead inspires them to work on your behalf to a common goal of patient care and you're getting home at a reasonable time. Listeners can save 15% on On Time MD by using the code 2021 at checkout. The course also comes with a guarantee that if in six weeks you have not reclaimed at least three hours per week, you can get your money back, no questions asked. You can't let another year go by doing things the same way. Now is your chance with On Time MD to reclaim your time for good. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd to get started today. We're joined today with Mike Sakopoulos, and we're going to, and by the way, Mike Sakopoulos is our general counsel. We're going to go through a case that was in the news this past year. Um, welcome, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me. So here's the headline. The headline is Las Vegas couple indicted in a $13 million fraud upon North Carolina Medicaid program with a scheme to, a scheme to launder proceeds into a private jet. Now, there was greater laundering of money, not just the private jet, but that certainly is the interesting headline. You saw that, did you not? Very splashy. And apparently what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas. These uh, folks had a lot of of problems um, and they were looking to conduct a fraud outside of the, the state of Nevada. They were using residents, some living in, and many deceased from the state of North Carolina, um, and billing for home health care services, uh, and I believe also some some hardware um, that was never, never provided. Let's so, chat about that. Yeah, let's yeah. jump right in. So I'm just reading directly from the indictment, and of course, you know, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in North Carolina gives its traditional caveat, saying indictment is merely an accusation. The defendants are 
presumed innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, right. That's based on this. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, I digress. All right. So here, the indictment alleges that the Herons, that's spelled H-A-R-R-O-N-S, that would be the couple, carried out this fraud by exploiting an eligibility tool that was entrusted only to North Carolina Medicaid providers. And I'm assuming they were not entrusted with access to that tool. So what did they do? They searched publicly available databases, uh, um, such as obituary listings or postings on the internet from North Carolina funeral homes to locate anyone who had died recently. Okay, that's step one, see who died. Number two, they would extract from the obituary posting enough personal information, <clears throat> including name, date of birth, date of death, et cetera. And then utilizing this extracted information, they would query the North Carolina Medicaid eligibility tool to determine whether this now deceased person had a Medicaid identification number. So most of the time the answer would be no, but they would probably get enough hits to then move on to step B. So if the, and again, I'm just reading from the indictment, if the deceased North Carolinian had a valid Medicaid identification number and was otherwise eligible for Medicaid coverage during their life, the Herons, the people indicted, would use that identity to backbill Medicaid uh, through, this, uh, through their organization for up to one year of fictitious home health services allegedly rendered prior to the death of the individual. So what did North Carolina Medicaid do? They would disperse the funds to their organization and uh, it would flow, it flowed into the accounts controlled by this, uh, by the couple. So what did they do with the cash? Um, well, they worked out of their penthouse condominium in Las Vegas, corporate office in North Carolina and uh, various hotels and luxury resorts in, in and outside the U.S. <clears throat> they bought a jet for $900,000, which seems like the bargain of the century, hundreds of thousands of dollars from Tiffany and Brioni clothing and jewelry, thousands of dollars uh, in uh, Eastern North Carolina business properties, thousands of dollars of gym equipment. So these people were still staying in pretty good shape while they were committing the fraud. Does that sound, does that sound right? I think that they have to be health conscious. It, um, it, it's taxing work to go through all those obituaries. And then rounding it out, they purchased a 2017 Aston Martin sports vehicle and had a wine collection, all of which is now going to be auctioned off, assuming that um, they are indicted. And I'm guessing, they, well, they are already, they've already been indicted, but assuming this moves to uh, conviction. There's a laundry list of all the things that they were um, indicted with, including conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, wire fraud. Uh, and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, this is a Medicaid fraud where they're trying to extract money from the government. This was a fairly flagrant operation, a, a real violation. I think tapping into a tool that was supposedly uh, supposed to make doctors' lives a little bit easier to get paid for services they actually did perform. And you can see the benefit that you want if a patient dies, you still and you've delivered services, you would certainly want to be able to be paid for these services, correct? Sure. So that, that, that's exactly right. And your point that this is really brazen or, or egregious is, is certainly well-founded. This is a 
wild case where all kinds of money flowed in that shouldn't for a long time. Uh, but we could easily imagine people making mistakes. The Office of, uh, it, which was not the case here, but but certainly that, that does happen. Look, the Office of <clears throat> OIG is looking for certain patterns, and they have algorithms to pick up on things. And clearly, home health care is an area that has seen a lot of fraud. And so I'm not at all surprised that this tripped flags and that an investigation was conducted and that these people have been been arrested and indicted for uh, really some some outrageous uh, type of, of behavior. But those algorithms pick up other people too that may not have had criminal intent. And so I think it would be useful to your audience to talk about things um, that, that would apply because let us all hope that we don't have an audience of people like the herons, right? That we have people that are, are well-intentioned and are trying to do the right thing. So my first message is uh, the Office of Inspector General, OIG, releases a work plan. And that work plan tells us all what they're focused in on, what types of issues they're interested in. And home health care fraud has been on that list for a while. Right? So we shouldn't be surprised that this trip to trigger. Uh, but it's publicly available, and I think that it is worth people's time to take a look at these lists. And it, and it varied. It used to be that they would release their work plan once a year. Now it's a rolling event where they can update it at different times and take off items, add new items, what whatnot. What um, but it, it's something that's freely available and, and worth people taking a look. Because if you're doing some activity that's on that list, you want to make sure that you are doing it appropriately. It would probably also help you make an informed decision if you decide to get into a particular business. Is this something sure. that you want to pay attention to? Because the challenge, of course, is um, how much oversight, how much compliance, what regulatory um, things need to be paid attention to. And initially, when people decide to get into a new business domain, they're thinking, what is the risk to the dollars that I'm putting into this and how much will I get out of it? I'm not sure everybody's thinking about the potential red flags that get thrown up and whether it may affect and even take down their core business. Right, and um, you, you bring up a good good point of uh, of a risk analysis. Look, OIG has authority to to look into all kinds of things, and they can go well beyond what's on their their work plan. That's just an idea of what they're they're interested in. But odd cases here and there are are certainly mixed in that don't are not reflected on the general parameters of the, the work plan. What you're doing, and these people were in Vegas, so they should have understood that they were playing the odds. And um, they, they, went the, they went the wrong direction on this one because they picked a hot area for compliance and enforcement when they moved into home healthcare. So um, that- Mike, what are some of the other hot button items on the Office of Inspector General's list? Now, just to educate our listeners, OIG, typically means Office of Inspector General, and they're um, within Health and Human Services. So you're dealing with federal law in, in that particular situation. You also have Medicaid, which is state-based. And in this case, it was the um, Eastern District of North Carolina, but still the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office, federal. So um, Medi Medicaid is a blend of state and federal. Um, and um, and I think those are the, if you get involved with uh, any type of federal payer, 
the scrutiny is quite high if indeed there's a problem. That's why there are healthy number of practitioners in the country who have said they just don't want to participate in any federally funded program, partly because the the price for compliance can be quite high. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. In fact, most doctors do participate in these programs. I, I think we're just trying to use this as an example of the type of challenges these organizations are facing um, in terms of just making sure the programs are run properly without fraud and abuse. Right. And in your, your question of, of what are some of the other types of things that are, are being looked at varies from time to time. What, what I've seen um, over, over the years and certainly recently is the idea that a patient population is looked at. And if your office is doing diagnostic testing of 95% of a certain type of a complaint when the national average to use that same diagnostic test is 30%, that could send up a red flag. Are we doing unnecessary uh, services or being overly aggressive? Why are people three or four times more likely to receive a diagnostic test when they walk into your practice than they would be if they walked into anyone else's practice? That's the type of thing that is being picked up on, on on algorithms. And there may be a very good answer for that, right? Maybe your your specialty is uh, such or your reputation is such that you are receiving referrals for patients that are um, in a different risk category than the, than the general uh, public. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything illegal or that the door is going to be kicked in at 3 a.m. by the FBI with a warrant, uh, but it does mean that you should have ducks in the row and be ready to answer some compliance questions. So speaking of compliance, let me know your thoughts on this. Uh, we're aware of a particular practice. It was an elective surgical practice where they would do um, any number of 10-minute to 30-minute procedures, often under general anesthesia. Um, most of the patients were reasonably healthy, but uh, this practice would reasonably send the patients over to an internist for medical clearance prior to getting general anesthesia. Why the surgeon just didn't want to have to go through the process of clearing them themselves, and and I get that entirely. I mean, the surgeon really doesn't manage diabetes, doesn't manage COPD, and so on and so forth. So the um, you know the quick solution is to um, send the patient to a, an internist or a primary care doctor to fulfill that uh, that mission. Um, in, in any event, apparently um, many, if not all of these patients, received a mega workup. And when I say mega workup, they were talking about labs, um, lab sheets that came back, you know, eight, nine, ten pages long. They were doing pulmonary function tests, mm -hmm. depression uh, screenings for depression, screenings for this, screening for that. And of course, it was all being billed. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking this is a five minute to 10 minute surgical procedure for anesthesia. Most, most of these people are otherwise healthy and they're getting a gazillion dollar workup. My I'm, look, there's nothing illegal with ordering a test to satisfy curiosity. If somebody's willing to pay cash out of pocket, you can just go to a company called requestatest.com. If you're curious as to what your CBC is today, and pay cash and you'll get the answer. But if you're a physician, you are certifying to a paying entity that the test that you're ordering is medically indicated. And there's a difference between satisfying curiosity and medically indicated. If you keep doing it over and over and over again, 
the conclusion may very well be you're doing it for the cash and this has nothing to do with a medical indication. I, I think this, you know, it, it becomes a question of whether you're going to have to pay that money back with with uh, interest and penalties or whether it turns into a criminal complaint. Can you talk a little bit about the fine line between, you know, what is just a, um, a mistake, um, an accounting error, if you will, that would be associated with more modest problems or something that may cause you to end up in a, a federal prison? In, in an orange jumpsuit. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> look, the laws are such that if something's improperly built or, or work is done that, that, that shouldn't have been, there can be different reasons for it. And the laws are such that there are civil penalties, which you properly identified as being monetary in nature, right? That um, you have to pay back money, maybe you have to pay it back with interest, maybe there's some penalties, uh, but we're not talking about locking you up. At some point, the activity, and I think we, we're seeing it in this example that we started out with, with the couple in Vegas that were buying Aston Martins and, and jets uh, for work that was never done uh, on people that no longer were even alive, right? That's so egregious and there's clear criminal intent. No one can say that they made a mistake, right? That they maybe were just had a, had a bad day and um, in, in ordered a couple of tests that maybe they, they, they shouldn't have or it was a questionable call, right? It, at some point we move from making a mistake into a criminal enterprise and then criminal uh, penalties can attach and yes billing the government for services that were not rendered or or were uh, clearly unnecessary can in circumstances uh, get you locked up in in federal prison so let's talk about a middle ground question what if um and, and the question is related to willful blindness i mean it's obvious that if you intentionally try to commit a fraud that that's a problem but willful blindness uh, where you're you should be overseeing the coding the billing and coding and the submission of these codes in your practice and if you're hands off and just sending it out to um, an employee in your office and they're aggressively overcoding and getting their bonus associated with how much money is coming in and you just kind of stick your head in the ground is that still just a civil penalty or are we talking about something that's a, a bit more problematic no i think it, it can be depending upon the facts more more problematic look it's going out under your provider number it's being done on your your behalf you're responsible for what's there filing a a, a claim to for reimbursement now, the government says we're going to look within the uh, within the, in the document. It has to be accurate, and it's being done on your behalf. And if it's not, you can be subject to penalties, including criminal uh, penalties. So just because you have someone else doing it uh, doesn't alle uh, relieve you of the responsibilities. Certainly, you're getting the checks. You're getting money for something that you don't deserve, and it's hard to say, well, it's not you know I'm not not my fault or so and so should have done it. Um, that's not going to not going to save you. You have a responsibility to oversee and show that there's quality in the claims that are being submitted on your behalf and your under your provider number. So um, not infrequently, so on. If you bill Medicare or Medicaid, you may end up getting a love letter from them saying we've noticed mm -hmm. uh, some discrepancy. By the way, it's usually never that you charge us too little or you bill too little for your services and 
we're here to give you more money. It's usually There's no thank you notes or Christmas cards, no. thank you notes do not get routinely sent out. But one wonders, um, and I've heard this, I don't know if it's accurate, that if you build too low, you could be equally liable for trying to bring in more business, if you will, than you'd otherwise be entitled to. So I, I've, I've heard it stated that you should very well go out of your way to make sure you're billing properly, not too little, not too high. You know, it should be the Goldilocks right in the middle. <laughs> Any comments on that? I I certainly have heard that theory. I don't know of anyone who has um, received notes from the government saying you've not billed us um, enough, but certainly it, it's theoretically uh, possible. Uh, the truth, I think, lies in the fact that there is so much fraud. And ladies and gentlemen, every week we get multiple examples of charges being filed where the fraud is in the multi-million dollar category. Could the government go after you if you didn't bill quite enough? Yeah, I think that there's legal basis for that. Is it happening? I think the practical reality is I'm not seeing it. Simply because there's so many bandits out there <laughs> robbing us of millions and millions of dollars that that's where the focus is is upon. And of course, why did Willie Sutton rob banks? Because that's where the money is. That's where the money is. There you yeah. go. Um, so, what, so when people are in the crosshairs with the federal government. It's typically a letter saying we've identified uh, a few charts or a few submissions that give us cause for concern. Give us some representative charts and we'll run an audit. Now they're not running an audit on everything that they've received. It's just on a select handful, a representative handful. What does that typically look like and what should doctors be thinking about if they receive that? Because if you're I think there's a tendency to think, well, if only 10 charts are being looked at, the maximum amount of exposure is just for any um, any billing problems with those 10 charts, and and that's not the case. It it is not. What what will happen is they will extrapolate out. They'll say we've looked at 10 or 20 charts. You you make the number, uh, and X percentage mm -hmm. of them have have this problem, and we know that your practice has done 15,000 of these, so we're going to apply that percentage to the 15,000, and that's the money we want back plus interest plus penalties. Um, it becomes a very large, uh, un unpleasant number, oftentimes. So my first message is, when one of these letters comes in, I've seen it time and again. It, it's surprising but people don't really know how to deal with it. So they think, oh no, and they set it down and they don't oftentimes go back to it. But red light crisis when you're being audited, right? And this is not something to attempt on, on your own. I think that you need to, to call in some reinforcements because the penalties can be really large and the process can be really um, uh, unpleasant. So lots of nuances here, but I would involve counsel right off the bat. Um, if you think, oh, well, we've not done anything intentionally wrong, good good for you, but that doesn't mean that you won't have problems and that you don't want to participate in how the investigation is done. Get somebody that knows what they're doing to help you. We've seen people who initially will attempt to answer on their own, thinking that here's the truth. If I just give them my side of the story, surely they will see it my way. And now there's this document that they've shipped to the um, to the federal agencies, which um, arguably on the surface is accurate, but doesn't really, but is not entirely responsive to the question right. at issue. And then you've kind of locked into that position without being able to create a counter narrative. And like anything else, there's gray zone uh, in terms of uh, billing and coding. 
And once you've locked in, it's really hard to to change that narrative. And I, I can't agree with you more in terms of engaging counsel. It'll be the best dollars you've ever spent in terms of trying to save money down the road. I, I know there's a tendency to say, oh my God, I don't wanna have to pay lawyers. Nobody likes paying lawyers. And actually, nobody, believe it or not, nobody likes paying their doctor either for that matter. But when you're unhealthy, you want a doctor to take care of you and, you know, Ultimately, you'll be happy to make that payment if the doctor makes you better. It's the same with legal services. Nobody is jumping up and down to pay an attorney, but if you've got a problem and the lawyer can save you a gazillion dollars by doing it properly, that you shouldn't even consider a counter scenario there. I, I agree with that. The other thing that I think a lot of people are unaware of, and, and look, you, you and I are not in the insurance sales business, but there is insurance for this that you can prospectively purchase. So if you were to receive one of these notices of, a, of an audit, uh, there is coverage available to help work through that. Um, so I simply raise it, most of the folks I work with have not purchased that type of insurance, but it is available. And for those that are concerned, it's worth a call to your broker. Now, who do you get that through? Is that through professional liability? carrier? Would it be an endorsement to that type of policy? It's usually, in, in my experience, it's, it's a separate policy than from your professional uh, liability. It um, goes in with errors and omissions, things like that, that will, can be uh, added on to those type of, uh, of policies. And so you can, you can get coverage. Most of the policies that I have seen are defense in nature. They're going to provide the attorney, they're gonna provide uh, billing review people to go through and, and look at how the billing was done uh, to analyze it and represent you during the, the auditing uh, process and try to, to help with negotiations. They do, it, these oftentimes do not pay the actual penalty if you have to refund money. Uh, but nonetheless, the process alone with lawyers and, and, and billing experts can be very expensive and it's something to look into. For what type of limits would you be looking at in terms of making, because it's not dissimilar to administrative defense for your medical license. Many policies give you $25,000, $50,000 and you, well, that's great. It's great to have that than not have it. You can certainly see how that pool would be exhausted rapidly um, if you, ultimately have to go to a hearing and or court uh, to defend. What about with, um, what about with medic, an allegation of Medicare, I, I, yeah, Medicaid I, I would, fraud? Yeah, I, I think that because it, you don't know if, if you're gonna be talking about one billing issue or multiple billing issues or a finite time period of the last 18 months or the last eight years, all of this changes the scope of the investigation and the cost associated with, with defending or, or dealing with it. So the additional coverage, if you're pushing beyond the twenty-five or $50,000 category, is relatively inexpensive for what you're receiving. And so I recommend um, you know, pu pushing, up, pushing up the limit north of $100,000 on this. I think you'll find it affordable. I'd like to close with just, um, I guess, one thought, which is how is it that doctors get caught? I mean, certainly if you're billing and you're billing for home, home health services, for example, and that's a hot spot and you're working in a hot zone, for example, uh, New York, Miami, Houston, et cetera, then you're at higher risk than average. 
but those aren't the only ways that you get a target on your back from the federal authorities. Um, frequently, it's due to an ex-spouse, a disgruntled employee, through something known as QTAM or whistleblower. What, can you talk a little bit about that? Because those are insiders, if you will, that decide to spill the beans about how you're making your money, how you're engaging in a particular fraud. What's in for them other than just vengeance? Well, there, there's certainly a degree of vengeance, but the law is written in such a way that they can profit by this. If they provide a tip that leads to money coming back, the government goes in and, and um, breaks up a fraud and collects a bunch of money, they can get up to 25% of what is taken back in. So there's a financial incentive on this. Uh, you're absolutely right. If you want to be uh, frightened, just type in whistleblower into Google and see how many hits you get. There is a, definitely a full industry out there of people looking for individuals to um, to, to blow a whistle because it's it, it's lucrative um, it, from the area of the practice of, of law as well as from the individual. But I will tell you that the majority of time, people that are, turn into whistleblowers raise their hand early and say, I think that there's a problem. And it's only when they're ignored or, or pushed off that they then start to look for uh, reasons to, to, to take it further and to contact lawyers, and that's where, where problems begin. So you want to, in your practice, have some degree of a safety valve. You want to allow people to raise issues and then take them seriously, because if they believe they're not being taken seriously, then people start to assume, oh, the practice is just doing this inappropriately to make money. When I raise the issue, they didn't even want to look at it because they're making too much money off of this scheme, blah, blah, blah. You want to show that you're taking it seriously and to incorporate in those, those comments. If you are doing things appropriately, then you need to show the whistleblower or potential whistleblower, look, here's the investigation we did. We want to do everything right. Here's what we found. This is why we believe that we're within the in the law. And that goes that goes a long way. My experience has been the people that that are contact a lawyer for a whistleblower are ones that have been ignored and that they raised their hand early on. And maybe they were ignored because what they were saying was considered uh, uh, foolish, right? Or, or that they just are ill-informed. Take these people seriously because they can cause you a lot of grief and you want to encourage people to help you overall with your, your quality. So whether it's a, a, a phone number for people to call or occasionally in the uh, um, employee bulletin or something saying if people have questions, raise them, whatever, you want to be the first call, not the lawyer for these folks. And the larger the organization, the more likely you'll run into these types of issues where um, someone in your organization will be scratching their head saying, I'm not sure this is entirely kosher, not entirely compliant. Right. Um, if, if, you, if, you, if you hear from them, you, you really do need to take some type of action. The, one of the interesting analogs is in professional liability, meaning that you've got a patient asking questions only because they don't know the answer. The doctor kind of blows them off. and um, the patient gets louder and louder um, and starts asking more and more questions, and the doctor goes mute, head goes in the sound, uh, in the sand. Um, and so, what does the patient do? They assume, rightly or wrongly, that the doctor is hiding something. So they go to a lawyer to get answers. It's not at, it's not that they want money at that point. They're looking for answers, 
And at the end of the day, had answers just been provided, frequently there is a reasonable answer. You, you could have headed that off at the past. This is not dissimilar to the situation we're talking about with um, gray zone disputes in uh, federal funding, federal billing and, and, and collecting. And whatever you do, do not fire the person when they've raised this issue. That only compounds your legal problem. Reflexively, I know some people do that. They're questioning my integrity. I can't have somebody that behaves that way working for me, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you need to deal with the problem first, address their concerns. You may want to terminate them at a later point for some other reason, but just because someone raises the issue, if you fire that person, that really compounds your legal problems. You've turned one problem into two because the allegation will be you fire them solely in retaliation, which is a whole domain of employment law. Number two, uh, you probably run into an issue related to the underlying claim related to the, the billing fraud meaning that yeah. you're trying to get rid of a witness, if you will. That's right. Rightly or wrongly, it's going to be viewed as, as almost an admission of, of bad acts on, on the billing. Well, I close by just stating that there's a private jet and Aston Martin getting ready to be auctioned off. So if someone's trying to find something for pennies on the dollar, the federal auction is going to be uh, uh, getting rid of the Heron's um, um, ill-found uh, properties. I don't know where they are. You'll have to do your own Google search on that. <laughs> exactly. So good luck on bidding on the Aston Martin. All right, Mike, thanks for joining us today on this very interesting case. We will talk again soon. Before we end, be sure to use your 15% off code for OnTimeMD by Dr. Phil Boucher to gain control of your life, your focus, and your time. Reach out at drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd and use code 2021 at checkout. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, 
one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.